What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas pod, the Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Joining me for the first time ever, Ian Tuluk, up there in Toronto in the cold, very boring area, uh, sports wise, where nothing is happening. Um, for his team that he covers and spends a lot of time watching. Absolutely nothing going on with the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? Nothing happening with the Maple Leafs. Nothing happened with the Toronto Raptors over the last few months. Mm. It's just a really boring time in sports right, right. now. A very boring time indeed in Toronto. Um, no, Toronto, it's... Are you tired of reading the Mike Babcock pieces yet? Are, are you at a Are you at a boiling point? See... Normally I'd say yes, but then I wrote one the other day when I, I was, it was the first piece of news that I'd ever broke and uh, I didn't realize that it was a big story that no one knew about. So I, I realized that I had to write about it. So even though I would say, you know what, I think it's probably time for us to move on and start talking about something else. New stories about Mike Babcock seem to keep leaking out and it's hard to not discuss them when they're really big stories in the sports world, especially in hockey. So what's going on? How would you ascertain what happened with Babcock and honestly just his like future as a coach in the in the NHL. So from a hockey perspective, he struggled with this Leafs team this season. I know over the previous three seasons or even four seasons, you could say he did a good job, but this year he really struggled with the roster, didn't get the most out of them offensively. It was clear that the players quit on him. There was a game a week ago where the Leafs lost six to one and that game easily could have been like 10 to one. The, the players just didn't try. They, they gave up on their coach. He was fired the game afterwards. He wasn't fired immediately after that game. He was fired the, the game after it. But ever since he was fired, stories keep leaking out from players about how disliked he was. And not just from a, a typical, you know, coaches hard on his players kind of sense, but some of the things he would say to players and do to players. The story that I broke was one that uh, Terry Koshan at the Toronto Sun first wrote about basically on the Toronto uh, Maple Leafs. They, they do this dad's trip every year and they did it in January of 2017 is when the story takes place. It was during Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander during their rookie season. Uh, Mitch Marner kind of got off to a slow start. Uh, the coach was upset with his hustle. So he brought him in and he asked him to give a list of the players on the team, he asked Mitch Marner for the teammates that he thought were the hardest working and the laziest. And he wanted to list them off, rank them from hardest working to laziest. Mitch Marner was 19 years old. And I'm not sure if you follow hockey closely, but Mitch Marner is basically a 12 year old. Like he, mm. he loves Call of Duty. He loves video games. He's <laughs> just a child out there. He's singing along to Bon Jovi during Leafs games, like during the commercial breaks. It's just a, I think most of those kids are. Jack Hughes looks 12, and then you have Nolan Patrick, who um, just eats ham and cheese sandwiches all the time. I think it's a common theme there. Marner's going to be a monster when he hits puberty. Really looking forward to it. But the playoff period that he can grow is just, it's uh, non-existent. It's like one of those kind of stubble things. But, okay, but, that, <laughs> now you're crossing a line. As someone who is 28 years old and can grow 
barely a goatee. I, I feel his pain. My Movember is embarrassing to the point where I just I, I have to start a month or two early to catch up to people. But getting back to Mitch Marner, basically, is this 19-year-old doesn't really know what he's supposed to do. So he, his coach, this really authoritarian, you know, $8 million per year coach or $6 million per year for eight years, most powerful coach in the NHL, asks him to do this. He does it. He gives his list. What he doesn't know is that Mike Babcock shows that list to two of the players at the bottom of the list who were ranked the the least hardworking, the laziest players, Nazem Kadri and Tyler Bozak. They flip out on the coach. They're really mad that they would put Marner in that situation. He's brought to tears in this situation. It eventually gets resolved, but stuff like this with not just Mike Babcock, but a lot of coaches in the NHL, the more you talk to people behind the scenes, you more, the more that you learn that this stuff takes place at the NHL level, at the junior levels, in minor hockey. A lot of stories are coming out right now about how mistreated people have been. One of Mike Babcock's disciples, Bill Peters, uh, is is not going well there either. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's officially been fired yet, but it's going to happen. He's going to be fired because he called. Do so you think he will get fired? I, everything from what I've heard is that they're going through the proper legal process, but they mm. are going to let him go. And he called one of his players the N-word in uh was it in the AHL or was it at, I think it was the AHL. Yeah, it was at the AHL level and more stories are coming out about coaches who are doing this kind of thing. Also physical abuse stuff came out with them too. Yeah. Pushing, shoving players, kicking them. Just what? Yeah. What is going on with these coaches? It's hard. Anyone who's ever played rep hockey, whether it's at, you know, a young age, uh, teenage years, there's this weird culture in hockey and you could even say in professional sports where it's not the same kind of working environment as, you know, your typical office culture. So, and, and I understand because in hockey, you can punch a dude in the face, whereas on the street, you can't do that. So naturally mm -hmm. the rules are going to be a little bit different because culturally the rules are going to be different. If, if the, well, either you talk about social norms and mores and everything like that, they're different in hockey. So naturally the culture is going to be a bit different, but, I don't think it's to the extent that a lot of old school coaches think it should be. And I know a lot of players have come out recently and we're starting to have a discussion about what is okay and what isn't okay. And I was, uh, me and Terry Koshan helped break that Mike Babcock story. The Bill Peters story is being broken by what was the name of the player who, uh, who came forward with the story? Um, I don't remember. I can look it up real head. quickly here, but it, news like this is coming out right now and the NHL uh, this week. I think we're going to see more and more stories like this. We're having a, a deeper discussion on hockey culture in general. Personally, I think it's good for the sport. A lot of, uh, I, I want to say, mainstream reporters who knew about stories like this but weren't sure if they should come forward with it. It's it reminds me of this, you know, quote unquote, locker room culture of, oh, you know, you, you got to keep that stuff behind closed doors. That's a, a team only kind of thing. I think we're starting to learn that that's not okay. And we need to move forward as a, as a sport and as a hockey community, learning that you just can't treat players like that. So it's, it's been a very uh, stressful week for me. I've been dealing with a lot of uh, comments, you know, DMS uh, in the, in the early goings, I was told that I was, you know, I was lying about it. that I was fabricating the story. Then Mitch Marner confirmed it the next day. And now there's frustration about it coming out a few years later. But at the same time, if you're a player, are you really going to feel comfortable coming out talking about uh, a very prestigious coach in your sport, especially if you're a lower end of the, of the roster kind of guy, you're not going to feel comfortable doing so. So it's a, it's an interesting time in hockey right now. Interesting time in professional sports. A lot of these stories are coming out right now and we're having a discussion and that's the discussion we're having on this podcast right now. So what you're telling me is we got to bring Don Cherry back in the booth. 
It's exactly what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was another thing. I mean, it's funny. We go from the Trudeau election. It's all happening extremely fast. Yeah, we go from the Canadian Joe election. Joe watch out, my guy. It's crazy. Um, there was an election one week where, you know, conservatives and liberals are, are very heated. Then Don Cherry gets fired. Now this stuff is coming out and a lot of us are divided in Canada right now when it comes to what we believe. And we're learning that hockey is a big part of the Canadian identity. And culturally, there's been a big shift in the last few years. And I think this is a big part of it. So how do the Leafs recover? How do they figure this out? Because they are playing a little bit better now. Are they going to be okay? Are we going to get a kind of St. Louis Blues like post-firing bump from the Leafs? Um, the rest of the season because they're still extremely talented they're still just a team that should be contending for the cup this year how do you see the post babcock era strictly this season going i know everyone uh, talking about the craig berube situation in st louis that's obviously the goal they fired their coach and they went from last to winning the stanley cup in, in a span of a few months i think the situation it reminds me a bit more of is in pittsburgh back in 2015-16 again i'm going to bring up situations where the team ended up winning the stanley cup because wouldn't it be great if that could happen in toronto but mm. the reason that i bring it up is because it was so similar the way that the roster was constructed it was a bunch of high skill high speed players who really struggled in their own end but if you built the team based on speed and skill then you should be playing them that way the coach uh, prior to Mike Sullivan in Pittsburgh, his name was Mike Johnston. He came in for a few months, tried to implement this you know, strong defensive system. But all it ended up doing was really just handicapping the team offensively. And they still struggled defensively. It didn't fix any of the defensive issues. When you have bad defensive players, you're probably going to be a, a, a rough defensive team. So when they fired him and brought in Mike Sullivan, what he did, he started activating the defenseman, getting the defenseman to skate up into the play, kind of have a five-man attack, more fluid, positionless play, kind of like what we see more in soccer and basketball these days. And the team really took to it. They generated way more offense. They were still not great defensively, but when you're getting tons of odd man rushes, tons of scoring chances, tons of shots, the pros tend to outweigh the cons. Early on in Toronto, these first two games under Sheldon Keefe, that's what we've seen so far. Again, a two-game sample is nothing in hockey. So we're going to need to see this over the span of, you know, 20-plus games, two, three months into the season to see if the Leafs can sustain success under this model. But I do think that it looks like the new coach is more philosophically aligned with the general manager. They've been working closely together since 2012. So they have that good working relationship. Dubis and Babcock never really had that great working relationship. So I think that they're going to try to play to the strengths of the roster a bit more. I still think there are going to be speed bumps along the way and and there's no guarantee that this team even wins a playoff round this year or even makes the playoffs but i think that they're definitely headed in the right direction because they're trying to maximize the talent on their roster by playing them the way that they should be played as, as opposed to trying to turn these players into something they're not where does taylor hall go edmonton that would be so fun wouldn't it mm. come on i, I would it i do you want edmonton to succeed do you want this to keep going as a fan of hockey, I want Connor McDavid in the playoffs. Yeah, that's we've been robbed yeah. of it the last two years. My girlfriend hates hockey and she loves <laughs> watching Connor McDavid. I, I think that just goes to show you how entertaining and electrifying of a player he is. Why does she like watching Connor McDavid? Uh, because he kind of looks like me. No, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> he uh, is the fastest player in the world. He's the most skilled player in the world, and he every shift he's on the ice, it looks like a video game. It just looks like it isn't quite fair when he's on the ice, and I'd argue it isn't, mm-hmm. but. Again, Taylor Hall is uh, similar. He's like a, a 
kind of toned down version of Connor McDavid. Incredibly fast, incredibly skilled. You know, is, isn't quite the you know best player in the world, but I'd say Taylor Hall's a top 20 player in the world. And he got traded away from Edmonton because, oddly enough, it was a very similar situation to Toronto. They were trying to turn the team into something they weren't. They had all these speedy, dynamic, high-end forwards, and the defense struggled, so they traded Taylor Hall for a second-pairing defenseman. And surprisingly, it hasn't worked out for Edmonton. But I'm just, I'm saying redo the Taylor Hall for Adam Larson trade. Just, you know, takesy, no, no takesy-backsies. Let's have some takes-backsies here. I think that would be fantastic. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> if you're the Devils, you could also just keep him. Like, if you think that you can re-sign him, because, I mean, he is an unrestricted free agent after this year. Um, I guess it depends on, like, where the contract negotiations are with them and where they think they're going to be um, next year, because I think this season has gone far different than what they internally thought would be my guess um i i wonder because the, i mean you still have till february and i think there is more value in moving him now just because there are probably a lot more teams um in the league that think they have a shot they, they have a shot of getting back into things like the sharks are and i'm gonna ask you about them in a second i've won nine to ten like there's just a lot of teams right now that are like oh maybe we can do it and that's kind of what you want in the taylor hall market right now um, and not to wait right before the deadline because then we've narrowed it down to just a handful by that point who can realistically win the cup. Um, I don't know. I, I am curious like what that relationship's like and if Hall is open to just staying there long term. Yeah, there are pros and cons to moving a player earlier in the season versus later in the season. Like you said, right now, more teams can convince themselves that they're in the playoff hunt, whereas come February, if you're 10 points out, you just don't have a shot. But at the same time... Paul Columbus. Oh, seriously, that was so much fun last year. But at the mm. same time, if you wait till February, then more teams can fit him under the cap because the way that the cap works, if you acquire Taylor Hall at the beginning of the season, you're on the hook for 100% of his salary because there's still 100% of the regular season to go. If you acquire him at the last minute on the trade deadline, or let's just call it the on the trade deadline, uh, I'm not sure what it is this year, if it's late February or early March. but It's February 24th, I think. Okay, and usually at around that point, there's about 20 games left in the season, a quarter of the season. So you're not on the hook for all of his salary, you're only on the hook for 25% of it, because it's prorated, that's how much is left in the regular season. So if you're a team who's tied up against the cap and would love to add a Taylor Hall, you might not be able to afford to do it right now, but if you wait until February, then all of a sudden you have more flexibility. So it's tricky from that standpoint. If you're the Devils and Taylor Hall's told you, I'm not resigning. And for what it's worth, if I'm, if I'm him, I don't resign with the way that things have gone. He's made it sound in the past like he wants to test the open market. And after the first month of the season in New Jersey, where everything was a disaster, I thought it was a foregone conclusion that he was gone. Now, they have started to turn things around a little bit here, but I still don't think they're going to be able to turn it around enough to the extent that he wants to resign with the team. So, if you're pretty sure that this player is going to leave you, you don't want him to walk away for nothing. I know as a Toronto Raptors fan, when Chris Bosh walked away and we didn't even get anything for him in a sign-and-trade, as a Raptors fan, I was really upset. I know if you look at the New York Islanders, they weren't too happy about John Tavares uh, leaving them and uh, heading to the Leafs and, and them getting nothing for him in a trade. You don't like trading a star player, but if you can help kickstart the rebuild, I mean, you already have Nico Hischier and you already have Jack Hughes that you're building around. You have some great, talented young players. If you can get another first-round pick and, let's say, a blue-chip prospect. I know when Ottawa traded Mark Stone, again, not ideal. You'd love to lock him up long-term. But if he's made it clear that he's not going to play for you in the next couple of years, you can get an Eric Brandstrom, a blue-chip defensive prospect. 
that trade worked out really well for them. Oddly enough, was much better than the Eric Carlson trade. Uh, Ottawa is a, a weird organization. I don't know how to evaluate a team that's owned by Eugene Melnick. But with Taylor Hall, if I had to wager, I guess that he's moved sometime in February because there are going to be more teams who have the cap flexibility to take him. I'd love it to be the Edmonton Oilers. I'd love it to be a team like the Colorado Avalanche, who seem to be building a team based on speed and skill. We'll see what happens. But it, it, gun to my head, I would say that Taylor Hall gets traded at some point this season. Who do you think the New York Islanders actually are? Are they cup contenders? Are they are they for real? Do you do you believe in the Islanders? Do you think they need a little bit more scoring? Um, do they need a little bit more of a power play punch? What do you think the Islanders actually are right now? I think they're an incredibly coached team. I think Barry Trotz, every team he's gone to, he's always got the best out of his roster. In Nashville, he had these talentless teams that he got to play lockdown defense. He got he came to Washington. He realized how dynamic the offense was, really opened things up offensively, got a lot of cross-ice movement in the offensive zone. Comes to the New York Islanders, and if you look at the Islanders roster, it's basically Matt Barzell and a, and a bunch of guys, and he's found a way to turn that into the best defensive team when it comes to not giving up any cross-ice passes in the defensive zone, uh, making life really easy on his goaltending. And you look at their save percentage, it's first in the league right now. Are they going to finish with the highest save percentage in the league? You never like betting on things like shooting percentage and save percentage to sustain over a long period of time. But again, these are things we were saying last year and it just kept happening. So maybe there's some Barry Trotz magic there that the public stats aren't picking up. I'd argue that there's definitely a bit there. But talent wise, I think this team needs some more scoring punch on their power play. I think they need... uh, Maybe another play-driving defenseman in the top four. I, I feel like the roster just doesn't have enough talent to be a bona fide Stanley Cup contender. But then again, if they get in the playoffs, we've seen crazier things happen. I mean, Vegas made it to a cup final in their first year as an expansion franchise. So anything can happen in this sport. But if I'm the Islanders, I'm looking to acquire maybe a, a bit more goal scoring, maybe a defenseman. Mm-hmm. I guess the defense, you look at it right now and say, yeah, it's not the problem. But I think puck moving, getting the puck out of your defensive end I would argue is a problem right now in Long Island. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think they're interesting. I, I love that the the articles like we're now at that point where the Sabers have fallen off a cliff again after another great hot start. Um, who could have seen that coming? It's funny. Someone posted a graph of their save percentage in the first like game of the season, second game, and how it slowly goes down, like from ten games <laughs> to so twenty sad. games. And I was joking. I was like, "Wait, which year is this from?" Because it happened last year, it's happening this year. I want to root for Buffalo because I like the idea of a Toronto-Buffalo rivalry, the QEW rivalry, where it only takes you about Mm. two hours to get to the rink. Uh, Jack Eichel is so fun to watch. Rasmus Dahlin is a revelation. Whenever he has the puck, it's just, it's it's ridiculous to watch. I still think that trading Ryan O'Reilly for whatever package they got was a huge mistake. I know that he didn't want to play in Buffalo anymore, and there was some, some stuff going on behind the scenes there that resulted in them moving him, but they got basically nothing in return for him they got a bunch of third liners for him and now they don't have much depth casey middlestat hasn't stepped into that top six role i know some people joke that he's casey middling stats i, I call him casey middle six because he just he, he never became that dynamic talent that everyone thought he would be he never became that dynamic point producer there's still time i think he's only 21 years old but he was a player who never really produced at a high level at any level, you look at him in the USHL, wasn't an elite point producer at five on five. You look at him in college, wasn't an elite point producer. And then after one year in college, he came to the NHL and everyone expected him to be a top six player. If you haven't produced at every level, 
I don't know why we would expect you to produce at the NHL level. He has incredible talent, but again, I feel like there were just too high expectations on Casey Middlestat to come in and kind of replace Ryan O'Reilly. That obviously hasn't happened. And at five on five, this team just isn't as strong as you'd like them to be. But I do like the additions they've made on the back end. They have some puck moving defensemen right now. I still think there's some hope in Buffalo, even if they weren't quite as good as they were in the the first month of the season. But I think someone like Casey Middlestat needs to take that next big big step forward if this team's going to become the uh, you know the playoff title contender that they want to become. What has changed the most with the Sharks in their last ten games? Why are they why are they back into the playoff hunt? Why are they back to who they were? Um, basically for like the last 15 years like they've quietly been the best i can we say the best franchise in the last 20 years where like they just have been solid forever and we've kind of taken it for granted and it was like oh this might be over this year and then they're back i can't think of a team who's had more regular regular season success let's say over the last right. 15 years and hasn't won a title. It reminds me of when you're talking about, you know, Steve Nash or Charles Barkley. Or yeah. The players, uh, Joe Thornton for me right now is like the best player currently to have never won a Stanley Cup. I'd love to see him finally get one because of how dominant those Sharks teams were over the years. If you look at any of the process stats, you know, like whether it's shot differential, scoring chance differential, the Sharks are still getting killed at five on five. And I think a big part of the problem is uh, Mark Edouard Vlasic is just, I think he's done. And that's sad to say when he has, what, seven more years left on his deal right now at $7 million, and it's, it's not, not great. It's not looking good. Another good point that someone brought up is that Joe Pavelski should have got that money realistically because, you know, Mark Edward Vlasic aging defenseman into his 30s, eh, not the greatest bet. But Joe Pavelski, still a superstar goal scorer, the best at deflecting point shots in the league. I don't think it's close, frankly. He's so good at it. I think that has more value on a team with Brett Burns and Eric Carlson than it does on any other team in the league. So I think losing him, you've seen their shot quality just drop down into the toilet. Now, all of a sudden, all their shots are coming from the blue line because no one's tipping those shots in front. I I still think there's a chance that this team finds a way to figure it out just because, you know, their power play is dynamic. I I never want to bet against a team with Eric Carlson and Brett Burns on the blue line. But without that tipping presence in front of the net... Their shot quality isn't great offensively. Their save percentage is last in the league. And I know that we say that, oh, we don't expect, you know, a save percentage at, at extreme ends of the spectrum to continue. That stuff tends to regress to the mean. When your goalies are, are Martin Jones and Aaron Dell, I mean, those guys were terrible last year. I, th- I think we should expect them to be terrible this year. I want to root for the Sharks because I love, I've loved watching them over the last 15 years. But looking at any kind of evidence that would... Uh, I just, I don't see it this year and it scares me because I don't know how they go about changing it. Sounds to me like you just hate the Sharks, the city of San Jose and Pete DeBoer as a whole. Eric Carlson's been my favorite defenseman in the NHL since he won the Norris. So I, I, all I want is him to win a Stanley Cup. Him playing on one leg last year in the playoffs and still absolutely torching the opposition was so fun to watch. I want this team to succeed. Can they get a goalie? How great would that be if they actually had some goaltending? They can have Ryan Miller. <laughs> What's funny is Ryan Miller, who was, was the one goaltender who was traded a few years ago, I think he went to St. Louis and it didn't work out. But he's actually been quietly great for the last few years as a backup. I know. I've watched. I mean, I'm a Ducks guy, so I, I've watched a lot of it. It's very strange, especially when you see like like they pay John Gibson and then Ryan Miller is just fine forever. So it's just that's kind of annoying. Ryan Miller is interesting because... 
I wasn't sure what to expect of him after he got traded to St. Louis that one year. You, you thought maybe, okay, is this guy's career done because he went to a Stanley Cup contender, couldn't figure it out. But then once we went to Anaheim, all of a sudden he's one of the better backup goalies in the league. I don't know if he's getting that like 30 to 40 number of starts per year, but usually goaltenders in their 30s don't age that well. And Ryan Miller's looked excellent over the last few seasons. He's quietly been one of the best backup goalies in hockey. Yeah, it's weird, but the Ducks are, they're dead, thankfully. Back down to um, Nowhereville. Uh, unfortunately, they won too many games last year to get in the Jack Hughes sweepstakes, so that was annoying because their GM sabotaged themselves. Probably coming from the, the GM spot to the bench and unfortunately winning too many games, so shots by Murray for that. But at least you uh, got to watch Randy Carlisle hockey, right? And isn't that just a joy as a hockey fan? It's not a joy. And it was <laughs> um, not fun at all, actually. Uh, the tire fire in the defensive zone. You don't really know what's happening and neither do the players. Yeah. All right, man. Well, this was fun. I really enjoyed this. Is there anything we should check out from you this week on theathletic.com or on your lease podcast? Yeah. So I should have a lease podcast coming out in a few days. I'm not sure when this is airing, but I, I'm going to have a podcast. Coming out on, okay. It's coming out tonight. Nice. So I'll have a podcast coming out on Thursday, um, the Leafs Geeks podcast, but I guess my more topical one is the one that I did. Uh, it came out Tuesday morning. So if this is coming out Tuesday night, that's perfect. Uh, it, it's called the staff and graph podcast. So wherever you're listening to this, you should be able to find the staff and graph podcast. I do it with Rachel Dory, who used to work with the New Jersey devils. We talked talked about the Babcock Marner story that I kind of broke in the article that I wrote about it, uh, the discussion on hockey Twitter right now, how everything's kind of up in flames. We didn't get a chance to talk about the Bill Peters situation because that kind of broke right after we started talking. Of course, that's just the way that the news cycle works, right? Because you put out a podcast and then an hour later, something big happens. But yeah, yeah at The Athletic, I do uh, post-game Leafs report cards. So if you watch the Leafs or if you're interested and um, you think something crazy good or crazy bad happens in a Leafs game, just go to The Athletic. I'll have my post-game story about it. And most of the time it's bad. But now that Sheldon Keith's been coaching the team, I have some positive things to write about. So my life's been a bit better lately. There you go. Ian, this has been a lot of fun. I'll uh, have to have you back on soon. Sounds great, Chase. You have yourself a good night. All right, welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by a guy who has covered the Titans for a very long time, and I am very intrigued by the state of the current Tennessee Titans, Paul Kaharski. Paul, good evening. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. Thanks. It's nice to be with you. How long have you been covering this team? I've covered this team since it had a different name and resided in a different town. I covered the 1996. Houston Oilers. Oh wow! Wow, um, that Go is back a little that, way. That's a, that's a long time. Um, Too long Titans right now. <laughs> I would I would not say that. Um, I guess my first question for you regarding the Titans right now is quite simply: Who are the Tennessee Titans? Well, I don't think we we really know. We have uh, a team that was what two and four with Marcus Mariota as quarterback, mm-hmm. uh, and a team that couldn't really figure itself out. I don't want to make it just about the quarterback, but with Ryan Tannehill at the helm, they figured themselves out more. Um, they've gone from scoring sixteen points a game to twenty nine points a game with Ryan Tannehill, um, and they've been. Um, 
you know, they had a couple very fortunate wins, but they all count the same. And now the last two games, uh, wins against Kansas City and Jacksonville, um, pretty convincing uh, against a good Kansas City team that doesn't play great defense and a Jacksonville team that they lost to early in the season in a, a really poor game, flipped things around, uh, you know, scored three touchdowns in three and a half minutes and uh, got their first division win of the season. And so now they reach uh, an obstacle that's been a big problem for them for a long time in the Indianapolis Colts. And once again, City's optimistic and hopeful that um, this will be the time, but uh, there's a lot to prove against the Colts. Yeah, um, it seems like they're just a very Jekyll and Hyde team. Do you think that that's kind of going away a little bit? Like they're kind of shedding that moniker just from having Tannehill the last couple weeks because he's just been so good on downfield throws and just Robert Mays had a really good stat of the, at the ringer. Um, the other day of just like how insanely good he's been and he's actually like played well enough where he's like priced out of what the bears can offer him uh to replace trubisky uh next summer um what have you seen what is the biggest change in the way the titans play from marcus Mariota to ryan Tannehill? well he's a lot more decisive uh and crisp he doesn't always feel the rush which is kind of uh double-edged sword because he could get hammered in there and uh, we know he's got a little bit of a history of getting hurt um but it's also made for um you know him keeping his eyes downfield and finding a variety of different guys open um he's not afraid to throw the ball downfield he's not afraid to throw the ball away um he's taken off and uh and run very well and very effectively quite frankly um, you know, if you describe how Tannehill is playing now, it's kind of how um, everybody described Mariota um, at his best and and how everybody described the hope for Mariota um, when he wasn't playing his best, but when everybody was hoping he would get back to what the Titans um, envis- envisioned for him. Yeah, Um what did you make of the the change? And somehow I have an al- somehow I have an alarm going off there. Sorry. So no, um, okay. it's it's been very good with with Tannehill, uh, but I wouldn't say you're seeing the good. I'm never going to say you're seeing the good side of a Titan Jekyll and Hyde scenario, um, and until they really prove it. Uh, and for me, um, that's very much a Colts thing. I'm not going to believe they, they, uh, I'm never going to predict them to beat the Colts until after I see them beat the Colts. Do you think Tannehill's the guy going forward? And also, do you think the organization and John Robinson and Vrabel and Arthur Smith and company are going to put their kind of put their jobs in the line behind Tannehill? Well, I think it's still a little bit early. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only been five games. He does have some injury history. We haven't seen him, uh, endure any knocks yet. Um, you know, they'd have to get something done, um, before he hits the market, he could be tantalizing for somebody else. Like you mentioned, um, the bears there Titans aren't going to be drafting high enough to get probably one of the top three guys. Um, but I don't think they'd be eager to be starting off with a, um, a kid. Um, I don't know that they've got necessarily the staff 
uh, you know, they're not going to say as much, but from the outside perspective, I don't know that they've got a great staff for training a kid from the beginning. Uh, Vrabel's, Vrabel's spot, obviously, is, uh, you know, as a defensive um, coach, uh, you know, he'd like, uh, I, I think, a quarterback who can kind of take care of some things without needing uh, all of that attention, if you will. This is me kind of speculating, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, a guy like Tannehill, probably, where they can play really good defense, run the ball, um, with Derrick Henry, another guy they're going to have to uh, re-sign and um, take care of business. John Robinson certainly, um, you know, has been here longer. This is his roster, and if he's got to draft a quarterback who's going to be in line to start in short order, um, it slows down everything for him, um, and he's going to face a lot of questions about why it's taking as long as it is. So. I think things would be quicker if this turns out to be the guy, but there's also six years of six years of evidence um, in in Miami that he's not. So it's quite a transformation if he puts himself in position to be that guy here. How has Mariota handled everything? Because by all accounts, it seemed like he was just he's been he's like a great teammate, great all around dude. How has he handled this demotion and just the, no. this kind of change? I mean, it's got to be brutal for somebody like Mariota. Yeah, he's also got very little little of a public pulse. Yeah. Uh, he showed zero uh, real uh, emotion in terms of what he was saying when he was at the podium every week. So he's certainly not going to show any now. Um, and quite frankly, I think it was part of uh, part of the issue. There's no um, no, you know, he was running out of energy and. Um, a, a, a team's going to draw off the fuel tank of the quarterback, and there was none there. So, um, you know, I, I don't know particularly how he's handling it because I'm not spending a lot of time looking at the backup quarterback because it's um, only a factor if he's called into duty. So, I mean, it's over for him here, and he's five games away or five games plus playoffs if they sneak in from um, looking for work elsewhere. And, you know, he's been a really likable, nice guy here. But that's his number number one quality. And um, he's not uh, at fault completely on his own here. Um, this place with all of the change around him helped break him, um, didn't build the system suited to him and all of that so it certainly helped break him but he didn't he didn't adapt enough and and he's allowed to connect on screen passes even if all that stuff is happening around him and at the end he he wasn't even hitting short throws and so um he had every chance to up a long-term contract and be the long-term guy here and he failed failed to do so and uh you know i think i think it was completely appropriate that they gave him every chance this year to win it again um you know to 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 grasp the job for the long term but i think it's completely possible this team looks back and and regrets giving him those six games because it could have been better if they didn't i think he needs like a couple years in new england 
Like that's the the spot for him. Is just go sit behind Brady for a year. Yeah, I don't think just he's go good somewhere enough. and hide. And I don't think re- he's good enough. I don't think he's. I, I, I said for three and a half years, I thought he had the skill set and the mindset to be an effective NFL quarterback. But in the mm-hmm. last year, from the middle of 2018 to the middle, or not quite the middle of 2019, I became less and less sure that that's the case. Yeah. It sucks. Life but maybe. Fast. Yeah, Life but maybe. Fast. Hey, we're seeing it, a change of scenery do a lot for Ryan Tannehill, so maybe. Right. And Teddy Bridgewater in New Orleans, that's the other guy, where he just went and rebought, obviously different circumstances with the injury, but a former first-round quarterback that was able to swallow his pride, sit behind um, just a great elite quarterback, future first ballot Hall of Famer, and reset his career. And yeah, but I, you're putting both of them. You're putting Bridgewater into a great team um, yeah. that has a great quarterback. And now if you're putting Mariota in New England, you're putting him on a great team that has a great quarterback. Mm-hmm. And those aren't the teams that are looking, you know, those are very fortunate situations. But you put them both in free agency and the teams that need quarterbacks aren't teams that have yeah. great situations. They're teams in need. And I think if you put Bridgewater on a team in need, it's going to have to, uh, you know, I think he could be a good quarterback if they have a lot of stuff. Like yeah. New Orleans had a lot of stuff. And which is what they tried to do in Payton. Tennessee, right? With Corey Davis yeah. and Delaney Walker and Deion Lewis and the offensive line. Like they gave him playmaker after playmaker after playmaker. And it just, uh, it never materialized like it has for, for Tannehill. Um, well, also De- Deion Lewis didn't turn out to be any kind of playmaker no. on this contract. What, Corey Davis what is going on like with Deion fifth, Lewis? Fifth pick in the draft. I think he was pretty much. A, a, a typical New England guy that, uh, I mean, he was never going to get that kind of money in New England. He got here and he didn't have much, much left to, to give. And so he's the third down back here, largely because he's good in pass protection. But, uh, you know, he's had a couple 24-yard screen plays, but he was down to eight snaps this week. And that's about what he's worth right now. And you mentioned Corey Davis. I mean, Corey Davis is a nice guy to have as part of your wide receiver group, but uh, he's not anything like a fifth pick in the draft should be, Um, you know, and Delaney Walker, you mentioned Delaney Walker uh, hasn't played in several weeks as his ankle injury from last year um has has become a problem again in the in the aftermath of that and i think uh he's probably not here next year in an unfortunate kind of wind down to his career and he's been such a great weapon here for so long and one of the best locker room guys in quotes you're ever going to come across so the weaponry you know, they may have tried uh, to set Marcus Mariota up with that, but it didn't really work out. Though Ryan Tannehill now is showing that uh, A.J. Brown and Johnny Smith, uh, you know, with with Derrick Henry as the backbone can, can be a pretty effective group. What happened to the offensive line? Like, what's happened with guys like Taylor Lewin and, and friends? Like, what... What was it? What has been the biggest reason they've kind of struggled? Um, well, so Milan being suspended for the first month didn't help by any no. means. Um, so you had a scramble there where somebody like Adam Humphreys, there's an underutilized guy who uh, yeah. 
played 12 snaps this week uh, in the win over Jacksonville, um, was staying in to help Dennis Kelly, the substitute left tackle block, which is not why he signed Adam Humphreys when you had insufficient production out of your slot receiver. Um, so that was the start of it. Roger Saffold didn't play very well uh, out of the gate. He's playing better now, certainly as a run blocker, not still all the way as a pass protector. Um, they like Ben Jones at center. Uh, they extended him. I think they overrate him a little bit. Uh, right guard, they did not have a sufficient plan for – uh, the time it was going to take for Nate Davis, the third-round draft pick out of Charlotte, to develop, and he is still a work in progress. And Jack Conklin just has never really turned back into the guy he was as a rookie when he was all pro, um, in part uh, after tearing his ACL at the end of that playoff season when they lost in New England, um, and they didn't exercise his fifth-year option. So he's going to be gone after this year. So the unit's gotten collectively better as the season's gone on, but still not good enough. It doesn't handle stunts and twists and games well enough. Um, but Derrick Henry's gotten going, so they've gotten going kind of as a run-blocking unit. And uh, good things come from that when it's asked, not asked to pass block. Um, as often, it's throwing you know, around 18 times, which seems like the kind of magic formula for this team to be better, but it's not always going to be the case. Um, last thing, and then we'll wrap up here. Um, how would you make the case for the Titans down the stretch over the Colts, over the Texans? I think we can go ahead and write off the Jaguars at this point of these last two. Yeah. No, I think it's going to be really hard. I mean, uh, I don't have it at my fingertips yet this week, but the Titans don't beat the Colts. Uh, mm. they, never lo- they never lost to Andrew Luck. Uh, I think that was 11 or 12 games. And then Jacoby Brissett um, comes in this year at week two, and the Titans had him. They were in position to drive for a game-winning field goal, and they had an absolutely horrific two-minute drive, spiking the ball a couple times uh, very awkwardly um, and not, not doing a good job getting themselves in position, and they lost the game by two points continuing to lose to the Colts, uh, who they should have been better than in that game. And they maybe should be better than in this game coming up this week. But uh, again, the Colts, it's just one of those rivalries where the two or three plays that need to be made in the game, the Colts uh, generally make them. And um, the Titans kind of trying to pretend that it's not a thing. Uh, it's just another game. I don't know if that's the right approach or not, but um so I, I can't make the case for the Titans over the Colts. Um, you know, I do think that the Texans, uh, you know, the, the thing that makes the Texans tough is Deshaun Watson, and he's been kind of up and down. They've been kind of up and down. I could see the Titans splitting with them or pulling off, uh, you know, maybe a sweep. But they've also got a trip to Oakland, and they're not particularly good on the West Coast. And, uh, and a home game against New Orleans, it's a tough final five. And uh, again, they've put themselves in this position where they can only afford to lose one, maybe two. And against that schedule, um, you know, last year they had a really, they're in a similar situation and they had four very winnable games before the finale against the Colts. 
which they lost and, and kept them out of the playoffs when Mariota was hurt. I think this is a much tougher stretch. They look really good right now, but uh, again, I don't think they've fully turned uh, turned the tide, and I won't be surprised to see them lose against the Colts, or even if they do, then to go to Oakland or uh, or or have a tough time against Houston or New Orleans or Houston again. So I think it's going to be really tough. They're going to need help, and um, I I I see them falling short again. But you know, maybe this Tannehill magic uh actually is a thing that carries over for five more games we'll see if they don't make the playoffs is Vrabel out no no he's fine okay. he's got a five-year contract um and uh, this is only his second year he and john robinson are lined up together i think there'll be a lot of questions to answer um as they as they kind of do their self-examination and answer to the owner amy adam strong uh, because the whole theme in the offseason was good to great um, and they haven't even stayed good to this stage. So it's going to be hard for them to get to great when they've already got five losses. But uh, And they've got a lot of free agents to come with the quarterbacks both not under contract. Derrick Henry's not under contract. Logan Ryan, the excellent uh, defensive back, is not under contract. Conklin and Dennis Kelly, the the tackles are not under contract. going to be an up change, uh, no matter what happens. All right, Paul, this has been great. I appreciate you uh, making the time tonight. What can we check out from you this week on your website and anywhere else? Well, uh, I just ask people to check out paulkuherski.com. Like I said, I've uh, been covering this team since the very, very beginning. And um, as my own boss, I answer to absolutely no one. So mm. uh, there's no editor or boss whispering in my ear or telling me, no, you can't write that. So it's very much, um, un unsupervised and I am unleashed there to, uh, express myself. Um, and I'm also uh co-host of the midday 180 on one Oh four five, the zone in Nashville. We're on daily 10 to two. And I've got a podcast connected to that, that I'd encourage people to check out called elsewhere which uh where i venture into to non-sports stuff so a whole bunch of stuff for you to check out all right go do that thanks so much paul and uh we'll have to check in again soon thanks for the invitation i appreciate it nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah